My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today is, as I've already mentioned, Christ the King or Reign of Christ Sunday. It's probably the youngest festival on our church year calendar, having first been celebrated back in 1925. So it's less than a century old, which in the life of the church is pretty pretty young. Coming at the end of the liturgical calendar, it is a day that is meant to kind of sum up the whole story of Jesus and why it matters, okay? What difference He makes. And that sounds like an awful lot of weight to put on one Sunday, but here we go. What strikes me as odd is that we call Jesus King at all. It seems to be the one title that he couldn't run away from fast enough. Huh? Every time, in, well, in the sixth chapter of John's gospel, this one, the gospel we read from this morning, you remember the story of him feeding a bunch of people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish? And John reports that immediately after that, they were trying to take him by force to make him their king. And Jesus kind of just quietly slips away through the crowd and goes off into the mountains by himself to avoid the whole deal. Messiah, anointed one, king. Whenever tr someone tried to hang one of those titles on Jesus, um, you ever notice how he either responds by telling him to shut up or to keep it on the way, way down low? Huh? Why do you think that is? Why did he seem to run away from those titles? Well, I suspect that it probably had something to do with how the title of king or ruler or lord is normally lived out among us here in this world. It's always about power, power to dictate the behavior and lives of other people. And the one thing we can say for certain is that when it comes to power, those who have it want to keep it. They do everything they can to hang on to their power. Now, we don't do kings and queens here. We do democratically elected leadership. But that really makes little difference, doesn't it? You ever notice that the first thing so many of our elected representatives or senators or governors or presidents or whoever do, the first thing after they get elected, they immediately start planning for their re-election campaign, right? Power wants to hang on to power. And if you doubt me, just pay close attention to how the redistricting process is done, right? It's all about power wanting to hang on to power. And how does power normally hang on to power in this world? Well, usually, it's through some kind of a reign of terror. That's right. Sometimes it's very overt. Sometimes it's very, very subtle. But it's terror nonetheless. How so? Usually one of two ways. Either convincing those with less power that they should be terrified of the one who has power over them by threatening their physical persons or their financial security or their spiritual well-being, lording it over them. Or, number two, convincing those with less power that they should be terrified of somebody else, that person over there, who might threaten their physical well-being or their money or their souls while making the case that their present leader or king or whoever will protect them from that one trying to take 
whatever from them. See? That's generally the way power works in our world. We know it. Politics, business, religion. Power seeks to conserve itself. And that's pretty much how it's wielded. And that is why Jesus is standing in front of Pilate in the 18th chapter of John's Gospel. Those with the religious power saw Jesus as a threat to their hanging on to power, to their leadership. By the way, whenever you read John's Gospel and you run into that term, the Jews, it's always shorthand for the religious authorities, like your denominational leaders, or like your pastor, or like your church council, right? And in Jesus' day, when those religious authorities met Jesus, they started to worry. If you start to forgive people who don't deserve it, well, then what kind of control will we have over their behavior? And what kind of life will we have together? See, it? it's a legitimate question. Having no law to deal with him the way they wanted to, to put him to death, to get rid of him, the ones with the religious power whisper to Pilate, the one with the political power, that maybe he's actually a threat to Pilate, right? I mean, there's rumors going around Pilate that he's claiming to be a king. So, Pilate asked him, are you a king? Jesus said to him, did you come up with that on your own or did somebody else plant that idea in your head? See, Jesus knows the power games that are taking place here and he's not willing to play along. Pilate says, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm not one of you. I'm not one of them, am I? Your own people, they're the ones who brought you to me. They're the ones accusing you. What have you done? Why have you got them so nervous? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And when he says that, that's not a spatial statement, okay, defining location. He's not saying that his kingdom is off there somewhere else. It's a qualitative statement. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not like this world. The power that I wield is not like the power that is wielded among you power seeking to control, power seeking to conserve itself at all costs. It's not a reign of suspicion or terror. It's something else altogether. It's a testimony to what he calls the truth. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Huh? There it is. The age-old question and the classic dodge of the relativist in power, right? Basically, Pilate is insinuating that truth is relative. It's subjective. For him, truth is whatever enables him to hang on to his power, to keep his subjects subject to him. As it turns out, truth is not a proposition. It's a relationship. It's a person. Hmm. Um, I'll show you something here this morning. My grandma, Sandness, made me this quilt and gave it to me when I was, a, I think when I was about a junior or senior in high school. Okay? And I will freely admit to everyone in this room right now that I was not terribly excited to receive it for Christmas when I was in high school. Okay? It's not exactly at the top of the wish list, 
You know what I'm saying? Uh, for a teenage boy. Um, but I'll tell you what, uh, being made around 1980, it's constructed with lots and lots of discarded pieces of corduroy pants that <laughs> everybody wore in the 70s and other bits of discarded fabric that had long gone out of style by then. Um, thank God there's no paisley in it, at least. But that quilt right there sat atop my bed uh, all throughout those years of college and seminary. And it was probably the one piece of decor in my room that did not change all those years. Posters on the wall changed. My stereo equipment changed as I upgraded. The music I played on that stereo changed. But that quilt was always on top of my bed. And as I slowly matured, I think my understanding of that gift matured as well. See, my grandma was a pretty powerful seamstress back in the day. She could sew anything and everything. She sewed my dad and my, uh, my aunt's clothing when they were kids. Um, she did the fancy embroidery and the Scandinavian tatting, all that fancy stuff. She could knit anything. She took in sewing often uh, to bring money into the household when my dad was growing up. But over the course of years, of course, you know, those abilities kind of started to be depleted. And that quilt came pretty close to the end of her productive run. She took what was old and what was all but worn out, and she transformed it. She redeemed it into something of form and function through arthritic hands and with a full heart. That quilt was all of her, for all of me. So, what is the kingdom of God? Well, I think you're sitting on it this morning, not your backsides. <laughs> these quilts that adorn these pews today, put together over the last year by dozens of women here in this place, gathering every Tuesday morning all year long. I think the kingdom of God is kind of like a quilt. It's basically a bunch of scrap and reclaimed material that once had another purpose, had another life, but that's gone now. That's long gone, dead even. But this material's been sifted out. It's been brought up from the bottom of the bin and stitched together with creativity and with imagination to become something unexpected, useful, beautiful even, for the purpose of blessing another with warmth and comfort. And I kind of like that analogy for the kingdom, that maybe we as members of Jesus' church are kind of like these bits of discarded garments as Christ our King acts as the divine quilter who kind of redeems us from the dump with all of our pain, all of our shame, all of our raggedness, fashions us into something beautiful, useful for the sake of blessing His world. But maybe it's even crazier than that. Maybe the kingdom is more upside down than that. Perhaps Jesus isn't the divine quilter at all. Maybe He's the squares and the triangles 
the odd-shaped scraps of fabric that the world wanted to dispose of. It's his body torn apart and unceremoniously discarded, now stitched together through the power of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit, filled with the love of God for every frozen heart in this world. And you, my dear people, my church, you are the divine quilters. Our reason for being, our mission, is to take the crucified King and the truth that is His love for people and offer Him new every day to a world torn apart by power games. We do this and there is still hope for this world. Things may be about to turn. Amen.